The same night, Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of Jabok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. Now a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. You may be seated. Difficult as it is for me to believe, much less verbally acknowledge, this uh, summer I uh, gathered together with friends from high school to celebrate my 20-year high school reunion. Um, I was that kid who all the way through high school was going somewhere. Um, I had plans. I knew I was going to get out of my hometown and uh, not look back. And um, I worked really hard uh, at that. I, I went away to college a good 12 hours away. I've lived literally from coast to coast, uh, from Alaska to South Carolina. Um, and right before my 20-year high school reunion, I had the um, odd experience of moving back to my hometown and purchasing a home and settling down. And as I approached that uh, event, my 20-year high school reunion, I felt a little overcome with this feeling uh, and ambivalence, right, kind of mixed feelings, um, both of excitement and dread. Um, Coming home can be a really sweet experience, but it can also be really difficult sometimes. These are people who knew me very well for a certain period of my time, Um, But these are also people who haven't known me for half of my life since that point. And so I started to wonder, what is it going to be like? You know, there were were the people who were bullies, and what what are they going to be like when I see them again? Um, And then there were the people who I was really close friends with, and then somehow, for some reason that nobody remembers, we had a disagreement and just lost track of each other. And what was it going to be like to see those people as well. And I had an opportunity to do some reflection leading up to that 20-year high school reunion um, where I realized that a a consistent theme in my life was running away from things. And I think that that's a common experience for so many of us. Um, There were things of, of my youth just being an awkward teenager, right, that when I hear those stories, brings up a little bit of shame, and I don't want to be seen that way anymore, right? I'm a, I'm a different person. But there's also that, that deep sense of hope of what could it be like? How might this experience be <coughs> redemptive? I know that I've changed over this time. Perhaps these folks have changed too. What if 
we could build a strong connection again and have a, a friendship um, that, that moves forward rather than, than falls away over time. I think what I started to realize as I ruminated over uh, the, the upcoming event, my high school reunion, I started to realize that though I had spent most of my life running away from myself, here I was, right back at the same place. And as I read our first lesson for this morning, I, I just feel this deep sense of connection with Jacob, who also for his entire life, was running away from something, but he never really knew what he was running towards. And now as he's heading back to his hometown, he receives word (laughs) that his brother, uh, with whom he had been estranged for a significant period of time, was coming to meet him, uh, accompanied by a retinue of 400 men. And so Jacob, I'm sure, was filled with considerable ambivalence, perhaps his sense of hope in a happy, peaceful, loving reunion was dashed the moment he heard about the soldiers who were coming as well. That sense of hope may have been replaced with other feelings. My sermon this morning is, is very simple. There's just two points. The first is wherever you go, there you are. So stop running. And my second point is, wherever you go, there he is. So start resting. So on that first point, wherever you go, there you are. So stop running. What was Jacob running from? As I read the text, it kind of forced me to move a little bit backwards in Genesis to get a a, a better familiarity with what had happened leading up to these events. And of course... I was reminded of Jacob's shameful past, Um, and I'm sure he was as well with uh, the uh, approach of his brothers. Um, Jacob, in many ways, spent his life running away from his own shame. Uh, First of all, when you go back and you read the story of Jacob's family of origin, these were difficult family dynamics, right? Um, If you're familiar with the story, you know that he was one of a pair of twins, Um, His other brother Esau happened to be his father's favorite, and he happened to be his mother's favorite. So that's 10 years of therapy right there. (laughs) Right, but even the story of his birth, right? We have this story where Esau is the, the firstborn, and as soon as Esau comes out, Jacob's hand is right there holding onto his heel, right? And of course, the narrative that's built is that Jacob was from the womb intending to supplant his elder brother. It's actually where he got his name. And apologies to the Jacobs among us. Um, I'm sure that your parents were very well intentioned, but uh, your name actually means supplanter or heel grabber. It's um, (laughs) unfortunate. And can you imagine being given a name every time someone called you by your name? It just revealed Once again, your shame, it uncovered that painful piece of your story. Along with the shame of family dynamics and and even his name, Jacob was ashamed of what he had done to his own brother. First, 
Um, we have the story where he cheats his brother out of his birthright, right? We've, we've got that where Esau was a manly man and Jacob was kind of this, you know, wimpy guy. And, and Esau had come back from a hunting trip and he was exhausted and Jacob had been cooking. And he offered his brother a bowl of soup for his birthright. Now, that was sketchy, right? And then, of course, not long after that, we have this episode where Jacob actually cheats his brother out of his own blessing, right? So Esau, being the eldest, deserved the the, the right and the privilege of their father Isaac's blessing. But Isaac had gone basically blind. And so Jacob had dressed himself up in furs to, to be hairy like his older brother Esau, walked in to Isaac's tent, convinced Isaac that he was Esau, and took that blessing from his brother. And from that event, he had spent the rest of his life running and hiding. I think initially he thought he was running and hiding from Esau. I would imagine it took a little while for him to recognize it was actually himself that he was running from. In March of 1862, U.S. Army Brigadier General James Shields achieved the very first and the only Union victory against the Confederate General Stonewall Jackson. It was at the Battle of Kernstown. Now, this accomplishment was rewarded by President Lincoln with a promotion to the role of Major General. Now, while there are many such honors granted to soldiers during the American Civil War, this particular one stood out as significant because of the rumors about the general's past relationship to the current commander-in-chief. You see, 20 years earlier, Lincoln and Shields both served in the Illinois state uh, government, uh, but they represented opposing parties. And in August of 1842, the Illinois State Bank actually went bankrupt and announced that it would no longer accept its own paper currency from private citizens looking to pay off their debts. Gold and silver, which most citizens did not have, became the only acceptable currency. And as you might imagine, people weren't too happy about this. Now, Shields was the state auditor of Illinois at the time, and he sided with his own Democratic Party and supported the decision to close the bank, leaving all of those um, individuals who had done business with the bank out in the cold. Shields then became the target of Whig Party opposition (laughs) to the financial plan. And Lincoln, who was then a self-described prairie lawyer, added fuel to the fire with a sizzling editorial written in early September See, Lincoln was friendly with the editor of the Sangamo Journal, the newspaper, um, there in Springfield. Uh, His name was Simeon Francis. And Francis allowed him to write an editorial letter under a pen name, Rebecca. As Rebecca, Lincoln attacked Shields for his politics and for his personal foibles, including taunting him over his failure to marry Lincoln showed the letter to Mary Todd, who then was his fiancée, and she found it delightfully entertaining. And a few days later, without Lincoln's knowledge, Mary Todd then began submitting her own critiques to the journal under the pen name Kathleen. As one might imagine, Shields did not take kindly to the letters, and he demanded that Francis, the editor of the newspaper, reveal Rebecca's true identity. 
and he obliged. So upon receiving this information, Shields demanded a retraction from Lincoln, but Lincoln refused, which then incited Shields to challenge Lincoln to a duel, which would be held in Missouri, where dueling was still legal at that time. Now, since Lincoln was the one challenged by Shields, he had the privilege of choosing the weapon for the duel, and he chose cavalry broadswords of the largest size, providing the six-foot-four Lincoln with an impossible advantage over the five-foot-nine Shields. For his own part, he didn't want to kill Shields, but he felt sure that he could disarm him with a blade. So the day of the duel, September 22nd, arrived, and the combatants met at Bloody Island, Missouri, to face victory or death. As the two men faced each other with a plank between them that neither was allowed to cross, another of Lincoln's stipulations, Lincoln swung his sword high above Shields to cut through a nearby tree branch. And this act demonstrated the immensity of Lincoln's reach and strength and was enough to show Shields that he was at a fatal disadvantage here. So with the encouragement of bystanders, the two ended up calling a truce. Lincoln's behavior, both riding behind the guise of a female pen name to indirectly criticize his political opponent and the cowardly way that he handled the duel, were considered ungentlemanly in his day. And this became a source of shame for the politician. So 20 years later, at the time of Shields' promotion, an officer publicly asked Lincoln in the Oval Office about the veracity of these stories. It is true that you once went out to fight a duel and all for the sake of the lady by your side? Lincoln replied, I do not deny it, but if you desire my friendship, you will never mention it again. Shame is a powerful thing. It's a strong negative emotion. And our natural desire when we encounter it is to run far away from it. Like Adam and Eve, we go into the bushes and we hide ourselves with fig leaves. But Esau was not only running from his shame, he was also running from fear and anxiety, wondering what will Esau, my brother, do? I don't know about you, but if you've ever been in a moment of intense fear and anxiety, right, that's when you stop thinking really clearly, and that's when your gut instinct, right, just that primal sense starts to kick in. And people tend to choose one of three options in that scenario, fight, flight, or freeze. Well, Jacob was never a fighter, and he was currently traveling with his wives and his children and just not a match for Esau. He knew in open battle he would lose, so fighting was not an option As far as flight goes, the only direction that he could flee was backwards. But that would send him back to his father-in-law, Laban, who he had just fled and made a peace agreement, a pact saying that he would never go back in that direction. So fighting is out, fleeing is out. And so the only option left to Esau is to freeze. He was going to have to meet with Esau face to face. But still, clever, clever Jacob. In an effort to mitigate his possible losses, he devised a plan to smuggle his family, his servants, his livestock, and his belongings past Esau in parcels, hoping that he may escape with some of his estates still intact. 
Sometimes fear gets the best of us. But third, Jacob was running from his shame. He was running from his fear. He was also running from his own deep felt sense of inadequacy. See, Jacob in this moment is absolutely powerless to save himself. All that he can do is try to mitigate the damage. Relying again on his duplicitous ways, which surely brought him full circle back to shame. We live in a society and a culture today that views shame as altogether bad, altogether unacceptable. Shame is a feeling to be avoided at all costs. And if you are a person who causes someone else to feel shame, shame on you for doing that. But I think when we go to Scripture to form a more biblical worldview, we can see that though shame is a very potent, very powerful emotion, the emotion in and itself is not bad. And the effect of shame in and of itself is not actually bad. right? Because shame really is interconnected deeply with grief. If we go to the New Testament, we can see what the Apostle Paul has to say about grief, right? There's two kinds of grief. There's a godly grief that leads to repentance, right? And this is actually the grace of God in our lives, right? Shame causes us grief, which leads us to repentance. There's also another type of grief. It's not a godly grief. It doesn't lead us to repentance. It simply leads us to running, to anger, discontent but there is a redemptive power and shame and fear and inadequacy and that happens exactly at the point of our story today when you realize you can no longer run away wherever you go there you are so Jacob sends his caravan ahead in two camps The text tells us he's thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the other camp that's left will at least escape, right? He may lose half of his goods, but he'll still retain the other half. As for Jacob himself, he remains in camp alone for the night. And it's interesting to see what he does. It's actually cut out of our lesson uh, in the liturgy today, but I want to read this to you, what what actually happens. So if you have a copy of Scripture with you, uh, please follow along. This is Genesis 32, beginning in verse 9. So Jacob, now at the camp, by himself, turns to prayer. He says, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love or of all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant for which, for with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Oh Lord, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers and the children, But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring 
as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And Jacob stayed there that night. And from what he had took with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me. Put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They're present, sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau, should you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see him face to face. Perhaps then he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him that he himself stayed the night in the camp. So interesting. Jacob, in that moment, feeling all of his shame, all of his fear, all of his inadequacy, does the only thing that any of us can do in that moment, which is turn to prayer. God, please save me. I can't do anything about this. But then he turns back to his own devices. What can I do? What can I do to get myself out of this predicament? I'll give a gift to my brother. I'm going to provide all of these good things in front of me, and then perhaps he will accept me. See, Jacob still doesn't get the gospel. But friends, wherever you go, there he is. So start resting, or at least start wrestling. Three things that we ought to be resting in. Three things that I I think Jacob ultimately finds here in the story. He's beginning to rest in remembrance, at, at least in his prayer, that God has always been faithful. He has the stories from his father Abraham, from his father Isaac. He has stories from his own life that he can look back on and say, God has always been faithful to me. He just left Camp where he met with his father-in-law Laban. He thought Laban was going to kill him. And the night before Laban found Jacob, God came to him in a vision and told him not to do any harm to Jacob. Of all people at all times, Jacob should be filled with remembrance that God has always been faithful, which should then propel him forward, not just to remembrance of what God has done in the past, but also in hope. That just as God has always been in the past, he will continue to be in the present. He can rest and hope that God will still be faithful. In his, pray, in his prayer that I just read, one of the things that I think is so significant is that Jacob actually names his shame over what he's done in the past. His fear of what his brother may do to him. And also his inadequacy, his recognition of powerlessness. There's nothing he can do in this moment. He names all of these things to God in his prayer. 
Over the last 30 or so years in the field of counseling, there has been um, a broad discovery of the role of attachment in our relationships. Um, there was actually a, a study done in the, uh, in the 1950s um, on attachment where children were brought in to a nursery with their mother and their mother would leave and they would observe what happened to those children when their mothers left. And then they would conduct further studies to try to understand more deeply the relationships between those mothers and children. Right? And through this study, we, we developed what became known as attachment theory. Right? This idea that some children came in to that nursery, and as soon as their mother left, the children cried and were completely inconsolable until the mom came and picked them up again. There were other children whose mothers dropped them off in the nursery and they didn't shed a tear at all. It was like they didn't even recognize that any, any change had occurred. And then there were children who maybe felt a, a little upset when mom left, but they quickly right, found some equilibrium. They could be comforted. right? And of course, when mom came back, they were very happy to see her. So, and out of this study, they realized that that attachment is so important for our ability to self-soothe, okay? So these infants who knew that they had a deep attachment that was secure in relationship with their mothers, they may be sad to see their mother go, but the day would, the time would come when mom would come back and everything would be okay. And so these children were able to self-soothe themselves. Other children were inconsolable. They were attached to their mother, but it wasn't a secure attachment, which is why they were inconsolable until their mother came back. And the third type of child, right, who wasn't upset at all, didn't have any form of attachment to their mother whatsoever. And so over years, these children continued to be studied to see what happened to them over life, right? And if, if you followed these studies, you'll know that the children who have secure attachments to their mother, right, from infancy tend to grow up to be very healthy, well-adapted, well-adjusted people. People who have insecure attachments are prone to lots of, of issues and, and sometimes even um, psychological disorders, as well as those who don't form any attachment whatsoever. Those who don't form any attachment whatsoever are more likely to become narcissists, right, or sociopaths. I think that attachment uh, is a powerful thing to study. Um, and I, I think it's even more interesting when we consider attachment in our relationship with God. Those of us who have a secure attachment relationship with God, we may go through times of trouble and difficulty. But we know that God is always one who will show us his favor. And we have a secure attachment that we know that whatever troubles come our way... Whatever shame, whatever fear, whatever inadequacy, God is there. Right? And we know that because we believe the gospel. But there are some of us who perhaps have heard the gospel but haven't yet believed the gospel. Right? We know that God is good. We're just not sure that he's good to us. We haven't yet embraced the truth of the gospel that Christ has died for us. We have a less secure attachment. 
But see, the thing about attachment, healthy attachment requires vulnerability. This is true in our relationships as parent and child. It's true in our relationships as husband and wife. We have to be able to be vulnerable with one another to say, this is what I'm ashamed of. This is what I'm afraid of. This is where I feel inadequate. So that this loved one can come alongside of us, meet us in that space, and show us unconditional love. And the same is true in our relationship with God. Right? To have a secure, attached relationship with God, we have to be honest and vulnerable about who we are. That happens the moment we stop running from ourselves. Loath as I am to be one of those preachers who quotes Tim Keller. I'm going to because this is pure gold. This is from his book, The Meaning of Marriage. Keller writes, to be loved but not known. And in other words, for somebody to have affection for us, but to not really see us because we're not really vulnerable. That's comforting, but it's superficial. Now, to be known but not loved, well, that's our greatest fear. For someone to see us for who we are and to reject us. But to be fully known and to be truly loved. Well, that's a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness. It fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. To be fully known by God and to be truly loved. Well, that's to have confidence, right? To have confidence in who God is, what is his character, That we can stand before him naked and unashamed. So start resting in remembrance that God has always been faithful. And hope that God will continue to be faithful. And confidence that God is willing and able to save. So our story today. Though the author of Genesis tells us that Jacob is wrestling with a man... It's also clear as we dig a little deeper into the text from the fact that Jacob names this place Peniel, right? The face of God. This was no mere mortal with whom Jacob wrestled on that night. It was God. He wrestled with him all night and he would not let him go. God even at one point knocked his hip out of socket. And Jacob still would not let go until he received a blessing. One of the things that I think is so profound about this story is that this wrestling match concludes with good news and bad news together. Jacob is wounded for life. Uh, It's it's not actually uh, in our, our lesson today, but... If you look at uh, verse 31, if you've got a copy uh, of Scripture in front of you, it says the sun rose up as he passed Penuel limping because of his hip. He had a limp for the rest of his life because of this encounter with God. I think something changed for Jacob in that moment. Um, Rather than running away from his inadequacy, he embraced it. That, That hip 
out of socket was there to remind him perpetually for the duration of his life that he cannot walk alone. Well, it's, it's bad news, but, it, but it's also good news. But the really good news is that God says to Jacob, what is your name? And Jacob is forced to share the most shameful thing about himself. My name is Jacob. I'm the supplanter. I'm the heel grabber. And what happens in this experience? He says, your name shall no longer be Jacob. It shall be Israel. Right? He who contends with God. That's a mighty, honorable, proud name that God gave to Jacob. Friends, what do I want you to take away from our lesson today? Wherever you go, there you are. And he's right there with you. God will both wound us irreparably, but he will also heal us, grant us a new name, a new identity. We come to him with our shame, our fear, anxiety, with our inadequacy. And he grants us adoption as sons and heirs in his household. And that is very good news indeed. Amen.